It's the Beer Vana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. <laughs> I am Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including one called The Beer Bible. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? I'm all right. And take two, one. really. Nailed yeah, that one. Yeah, take two was awesome. <laughs> Got a little punchy in take two. I almost never do extra takes, but. Uh, I know. That's that's not how we roll. That's not you how get, we roll. We you get one take. Warts and all. We have, that's our motto. <laughs> We're very transparent, very revealing. That's right. We don't like to, yeah, we don't like to uh, cover up our flaws. We like to reveal them to the world. That's right. It's kind of like, uh, you know, a wound should scab over. So. Yes. You got to expose it to the light in the air. <laughs> <laughs> the Beer podcast. That's kind of gross. on the internet. <laughs> that's kind of gross. Yes. Uh, anyway, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Fall is settling in. Your beer drinking habits changing with the weather, noticeably. Uh, they're they're on. They're they're at a hinge point of changing uh. because uh, we are finally seeing the departure of fresh hop ales and and lagers. And oh, I have been true. drinking yeah. a lot of those, so yeah. I'm feeling like um, every time I I go to a, a pub now, I think, oh, maybe I'll see if I have something. You know, maybe they have something dark or a little heartier, mm-hmm. and then they have a fresh hop beer, and I'm like, oh, I'm getting that fresh hop beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's been a good season for fresh hop beers. Yeah, I think totally. I, that is my that is my conclusion at the end of the season. Yeah, that this was like we get it seems to get better pretty much every year, but this was a particularly good year. Yeah, it really was, nice. A whole bunch of different varieties and styles. It's not just an IPA with fresh hops. I feel like last year was the first year after the. After COVID, it was the sort of the COVID rebound year, and it wasn't particularly strong. And this year, we were we were back to full force. So very yeah. good times. Yeah, but, yeah. And so kudos to all those brewers. I find myself. Yeah, I was going to ask this you is, about you. This is IPA season. Uh, which oh, so summer's lager season? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. So this is my aging self. So now summer's is very much a lager, maybe a nice light pale ale. And then now that the weather gets a little colder, then a little more alcohol, a little more boom in flavor. And so this is when I start turning to IPAs. Gotcha. Yeah. And then and then as it gets even darker and colder, then I'll start getting into the darker beers as well. Well, I had a couple and, of beers. Oh, go ahead. Well, sorry, I was just going to say, uh, and a fest beer is a nice transition moment. Yeah. To go yeah. from the light lager to the IPAs. And as I learned, uh, because I had a couple of beers here, and I thought, well, maybe I'll pull out one of these seasonal beers. Oh, you have never had, it sounds like, uh, the most American <laughs> seasonal beer of all, the pumpkin ale. But the good thing you know is it doesn't stop me from having an opinion. And you think you don't like them? Oh, well, actually, I don't have much of a strong opinion, but I was, that was kind of a joke. But I uh, haven't had them because I don't think I'd like them, nor particularly... Uh, let me put it this way. They might be fine, but I still don't really, I'm not motivated to have a pumpkin beer. All right. Well, we're, you're, we're, you're going to taste live but I'm about, on yeah, the internet. I'm going to see whether whether that uh, that preconception holds. That's but right. you also know that I'm just not like that big on additives and beer in general, like spice beers and stuff. I tend to not, you know, just give me a beer that's made of hops and water and yeast and barley. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll try this and we'll see what you think. You can see by your laugh, you know that I have an odd expression on my face. Uh, Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. When are we gonna When are we gonna try it? There's that sun. Ooh, it's late. Well, not late fall, but it's late October in 
and the sun is peeking through. Yeah, I didn't think it was going to come promise, out. I promise. Yeah. So Jeff was teasing me because I showed up in shorts today because I knew, because I read the weather report, that the sun's going to come. It's going to be warm. I read that too. And, and, and we both related to that report differently because uh, for one hour, it will be 70 degrees. And otherwise, it was going to be in the low, uh, high 50s or low 60s. And so, I'm going to enjoy my exposed legs out there in the 70 degrees in the sun. Hanging on as long get as my, you can. Get my vitamin D fix while I can, man. All right. I have as much exposed skin as possible. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Northwest. Got to yeah. take it when you can get it. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, we should probably get to um, the podcast. All right. Topic. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So when we think of different beers, our minds almost immediately frame them in terms of style. IPAs and wit beers and Czech dark lagers. This is how we've come to understand beer. To get, today, we get philosophical and ask the question, what if styles aren't the only way to think about beer? What if, rather than illuminating something essential about beer, styles actually deceive us? We will investigate these heady questions soon, but first, the news. The first item is incredibly dumb, but irresistible. <laughs> oh, I can't. <laughs> a little editorial comment stop. by the author in there. Yeah, I can't stop laughing. Tesla has released a new beer that fans can buy for the low, low price of $150. Described as a Hellas Lager Cyber Beer. <laughs> it 7% ABV, as Hellas's are. Right. Uh, but the real selling point is that it comes in bottles shaped to evoke Tesla's new Cybertruck along with two ceramic mugs that are also awkwardly angular. The bottles appear to have been defaced by graffiti. <laughs> Jeff has, uh, it doesn't help the listener, but it helps the host. Jeff has uh, attached a photo uh, to the script here, so I can see these crazy angular things. Um, yeah, I seem to recall like a cyber scent or something. Didn't he do like a cologne? And there's been other weird things. There are other weird things. You're right, and yeah. I don't know what those are. And I, I guess this is the second beer. They've already done one beer. Oh well, maybe uh, that's what I saw earlier. No, there were there were other things because if you go to the website, which I clicked through to uh, when I when I saw this, uh, you can buy other very tchotch various tchotchkes. And do, stuff. They, do they um, reveal the provenance of this beer? Actually, the place that reported it did, and it was a craft brewery, oh, okay. um, whom I'm sure was happy to get the contract to make a seven percent Hellas. Yeah, let's right. go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll make you a seven percent Hellas. Why not? Yes, that's not a style. It's not brewed to style. But that's <gasps> cool. But you know what? I'm cool with that. I'm no, cool. No, no, you must have it brewed to style, or it doesn't count. I'm cool with that, and we're going to get to why I'm cool with that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, but which uh, is why I'm being. Yes. Absurd. But the, but the second point we should talk about first, which is uh, if that first item was very dumb, uh, then this one is very smart. Oh, okay. Vermont-based. <laughs> I thought we were going to get dumber. No. I was excited, but now, <laughs> now we got to get smart. Okay. No, no. Uh, there's only so much dumb in the world. Uh, Vermont-based Lawson's Finest Jeff, Liquids. never underestimate the depth of the dumb in the world. I, well... You know, Sorry. I'm an optimist. I stepped on you. Vermont-based. Uh, Lawson's Finest Liquids announced that they now generate 100% of their energy needs from solar power. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is a, kind of remarkable. In 2019, the brewery installed 140 roof panels, and in 2020, added another 495 above the parking lot and car charging stations. In terms of beer, the brewery wrote in a press release, this means supplying enough energy to produce about 2.4 million cans annually of Lawson's Finest Brews. Golly. Yeah. I mean, that takes a lot of energy to heat water for beer. It's an energy-intensive 
uh, product. Yeah, totally. It's a big deal, I think, to try to. So that's come a total that. of like 650, a little less than 650 solar panels. Yeah. And I don't know anything about solar panels and how big they are and how much they generate or anything else, but um, it's a it's a, it's some wattage. Yeah, that's impressive because you know the thing about solar power, uh, which I also know very little about, but I know that you know the sunlight only has so much power per square foot. Right. So it's not a tremendous amount of. It's not that we're constrained by our ability to convert it. It's just not that much to begin with. So that's right. Um, that's really cool. It is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. I, uh, Good for them. I, I like it a lot, too. And, and it's not, like I said, one was going to be in Arizona. Right. Like Arizona. No, it's Vermont. Yeah, it's Vermont. So that's even more cool. Like, if you had a brewer in Arizona, you could have a bunch of solar water heaters and then solar electric panels, photovoltaic panels. Uh, and then I would definitely think that that's more feasible, but I would not have expected you could do it in Vermont. Yeah, the new Kona Brewery in, in Hawaii, which is not owned by AB InBev, it's its own independent company, spun off. After... Unlike the, the Kona you are drinking in the, United, the continental United States. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one has a big, fo- uh, uh, a lot of solar panels too, and that makes a lot of sense because it's Hawaii. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, kudos. Yeah, indeed. I was I was pleased to see beer does something dumb, beer does something smart. <laughs> well, maybe Lawson's can brew some cyber brew or whatever they call That's it. What is right. it called? Yeah, cyber beer. And then uh, come full circle. I just have to say that the cyber truck, I don't know if you've seen photos of it, it's the greatest monstrosity ever known to man. It's just hideous. And every aesthetics are, are, are wholly subjective, but I'm not wrong on this. Yeah, I have this sense that, you know, there's going to be the first 100,000 you know, super Elon Musk enthusiast heads are going to go nuts for it. But I don't think this one's going to have legs. I no. just, it's hard. And apparently they're still having problems with production because stainless steel panels, as John DeLorean will tell you, right. are really hard to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. like aluminum. You can just bend it any way you want and everything works great. That's so right. uh, I'm a little bit of a skeptic. However, would never have predicted that Tesla could get away with um, what the Model S now is like, got to be what 12 years old or something and they never once really changed the design so most car manufacturers like three or four years every three or four years they have a major refresh of whatever model and tesla's just not doing it and yet it doesn't seem to matter so who knows they're reinventing the car market i guess they are they are you might see tire cyber trucks everywhere in fact you might end up in a cyber truck jeff you never know i 100 percent guarantee <laughs> no. that i will not own a cyber truck i may drive someone may give me a ride in one i can't predict that uh yeah i wouldn't mind a ride in one yeah well we'll see, see i can do that uh all right well why don't we uh, turn to our main discussion which is all about style yeah so i i, I appreciate your forbearance on this one because this is a bugaboo of mine and i kind of dragged you along on this one. Oh no i'm, I'm all for it let's talk because yeah. i think it's fascinating actually cool well we we uh as we record this um the great american beer festival this is a good place to start i think just concluded not long ago and um at this point the great american beer festival has uh 99 categories uh of that you can enter a beer into and Underneath that, I got to get out my spectacles. Ninety-nine my... styles. Ninety-nine, yeah. So well, categories. Or categories, and then under that, there are one hundred and seventy-six sub styles, <laughs> and they include things like. Wait, wait, wait. So you add those together? 
Or, or is the substyle the, the total number of categories you can win medals in? No, the substyles are like, so it'll be like uh, um, uh, Rauch beer is one, and then it can be, there's like uh, Mertzen and Helles underneath that. So you can, in the Rauch beer category, you can enter from these styles, but they feel, uh, but but they're full full style descriptions of all the substyles oh uh, that you have to brew. If you're gonna brew a Weizen Rauch beer, you have to brew it to the style guidelines listed in the the annual uh, GABF style guideline listings, and it's it's just gotten out of hand. So there's things like American style wheat wine, which is interesting that you would have more than one kind of wheat wine, uh, Australasian, Latin American, or tropical style light lager. And the big one, Breslau style shoops. Uh, trivia quiz: What's a Breslau style shoop? Oh well, in this little um, Bavarian village called Breslau, they put schnapps in their uh, uh, in their seven percent helices. Yeah, in their seven percent helices, and that's called <laughs> that's called a shoop. I know yeah. this. Come on, everybody knows this. Uh, Very right. popular style. No, what is it? I, I have no, no idea. I've never oh. heard of it. I was just looking through that and I thought, oh my Did god, you, do you got... even know what a Breslau style is? What's no. a Breslau? I have no idea. Oh. I have no idea about any of it. That's why it's really amazing to me. And just to continue on my my diatribe, and I I want to. I'm not this. I'm not particularly trying to single out the GABF. I think this is endemic to yeah, the yeah, beer styles. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. um, but it's but I'm going to use the uh, GABF as an example of of kind of how my my peak started with all of this yeah um it's gotten to the point where there are now 10 ipa categories yes these include session ipa experimental ipa new zealand ipa american ipa american style strong pale ale which i'm not even sure what that is because this isn't a strong pale ale and <laughs> ipa, IPA. <laughs> uh, juicy or hazy strong pale ale uh, juicy or hazy ipa west coast ipa imperial ipa juicy or hazy imperial ipa there are also six barrel-aged categories. And then, check this out, there is chili beer, own category, coffee beer, own category, and coffee, stout, or porter, own category. I mean... <laughs> yeah, this is getting is. a little crazy. By the way, I have to ask you, this Juicy or Hazy IPA in Juicy or Hazy this, Juicy or Hazy that, that's one category. Juicy or Hazy. You can be hazy and not juicy. Right. And juicy and not hazy. Yeah, you can I be think- juicy and hazy. I think mostly you have to be juicy. Juicy, right? Yeah. So yeah. shouldn't it be juicy and or hazy? Probably so. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> right. right. All right, but I have a bigger fish to fry for the moment because I, my, I'm getting um, thirsty. I'm getting a dry palate, getting thirsty. <laughs> and so reaching for the beer we we're going to try, you promised me a pumpkin beer, yes? I did. Yes. Yeah. And what did you give me? You gave me a barrel-aged rindless watermelon goza. Oh, no. <laughs> And it's got a big giant watermelon face on it, which I didn't look at that very could closely. Could be a pumpkin face, and I think I understand the problem is because you, um, my friend, are colorblind, and this big green watermelon is not a big orange pumpkin. Uh, all right, keep. I, I, there's there's a tiny percentage chance that, that there is, is a actually pumpkin a pumpkin beer in there, but I think maybe there is not. So all right, we're gonna take a we're gonna take a, a brief break. Okay, so uh, no, 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 no pumpkin beer. I have two. But that's okay. I, have, I have two. I have two watermelon gozas. But this is okay because you know the the tequila barrel aged watermelon goza is probably one of those GABF styles. 
uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it actually soon to ties be. in. It ties in. Well, so what the heck? Let's give a That's watermelon right. goes. I was so excited for you to have your first pumpkin beer too, which is a real disappointment. So I feel like well, I failed. And I happen to know that the pumpkin beer they sent me these two beers at the same time, and the pumpkin beer is really nice. Oh. Uh, well, there you go. It's made with pumpkin pie spice, but also ancho chilies, oh. which are uh, at a very low level, so they contribute more flavor than taste, or more flavor than than spice. And so they give it a kind of earthy, lovely under. Well, I look forward to trying it. Eventually, maybe our next pod should just all be about pumpkin beer. Well, there's always next year. <laughs> Check back in 2024 for pumpkin Jeff and Patrick drink pumpkin, pumpkin ale. <laughs> well, we'll throw one into some. All right, Jeff. So here we go. All right. Uh, speaking of styles, tell me why I shouldn't have a medal when I brew my. Well, I'm it's all for weird things like this. I'm curious if they decided to call it a Goza because I'm not sure what that's contributing in terms of it. Obviously, this is a hundred mile, a million miles away from German Goza. So it doesn't really give me a whole lot of information about what the base style is going to be. And nobody knows what Goza is anyway. So if they see that on the label, it's not they're going to say, oh, a Goza. I'm attracted to that. But that's what that. like all these like uh, um, uh, pure, uh, fruit puree beers all have a goza base, which to me I just take as a base beer that's not sweet, you know. Right. <laughs> Essentially. That right. basically yeah. you can't taste. It is a tart beer. Um so the goza is a beer that is tart and has the 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 German style is tart and has salt in it. And this has tequila. So I I kind of see where they're going with this, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of a you're getting yourself a little bit of a margarita kind of thing here. And that's not nearly as horrible as I thought it was gonna be. <laughs> When you see, be- I'm really, I'm really. We glad. haven't said the brewery, so I feel like I can. But actually, it's it's kind of not bad. No, I, I I'm I'm happy to say the brewery is Hopworks. Okay. Uh, now we can Portland. say, <laughs> and uh, I think it is an interesting thing, especially given what, what they were clearly going for is a uh, kind of cocktail sort of presentation. Uh, and, yeah, and they've kind of achieved it. It does really kind of have a, a sort of a margarita e. But it, um, it when I first of... pulled this out of the box when they sent it to me and I saw it was a barrel aged Goza, mm-hmm. I was thinking bourbon barrel aged, and I was like, man, that is good. there's going to be no greater disaster than that. Yeah. And then I was really delighted to see, yeah, oh, it's, oh it's tequila. tequila barrels, and you can get a little hint of tequila. You can. You do get a little hint of salt, and I don't whether it's because they're doing the Goza or just because they're doing this. Uh, the watermelon, I'm yeah. kind of getting more apple than watermelon. I get no watermelon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't really get a lot of watermelon, but. Um, on the nose, particularly, I smell apple, like green apple. I don't know if I get apple, but I get <laughs> I get the tequila. I get a lot of tequila. <laughs> yeah, you do get tequila. Anyway, all right. Well, it's not pumpkin, but it's something, and it's not bad. It's true. So you've never had a pumpkin beer, but you've had a tequila-aged uh, goza. So there you go. Watermelon goza, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, back to, back to styles and what my what my thinking is here. I, I just to start with kind of um, a, a broader way of talking about this mm-hmm. styles really do color the way we think about beer at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we think of it as almost um, a description of the natural world kind of situation. Like there's no other way to think about beer. Yeah. And yet um, it was 
totally a choice and there was a bunch of things that led to this choice and and it didn't have to be styles there are a lot of different ways to think about beer and historically uh, in, in other countries, people didn't necessarily use a framework of style when they thought about beer. Um, in Central Europe, it's really common to think about beer in terms of strength. Mm-hmm. So the Czech Republic is really famous for this. All their beers um, have, if if you look at the name, they will have one word that designates the color, uh, the, how, how light or dark it is, and mm-hmm. one that designates its strength. Mm-hmm. German beers are categorized by, by strength categories. Mm-hmm. Um, so strength can be a thing that you do. Um, that's like one way to think about it. There's a lot of different ways to think about it, but we ended up with styles, uh, which kind of have, um, some, some real challenges associated with them. And, I, and there's, I, I, can't, I think kind of a reason, uh, we ended up here and it, it's America, America kind of did a, <laughs> America did a weird thing and we're a little bit responsible for all of this. Um, but let me let me stop and let you jump in if you. Have well, I was just going to say that you know we're the catch-all of all the beer innovation that happened before, and so we don't have a native. Well, we didn't have a native style, right? Uh, and so we sort of had to make sense of all this different stuff you can get from all over the place. I'm yeah, playing devil's advocate. That's <laughs> that's right, and I think that's how we got here. Was particularly. Um, the 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 homebrewers were really the first group that was experimenting back in the 1970s in styles that were not light lager right and they didn't know what these beer styles were so somebody went down and started writing them down like hey you know what if you go to uh, england they have these bitters and milds and right started writing down what they found out there and it coincided with the work that michael jackson the famous writer yeah i was uh, about to i was about to throw him out there as a counter argument so isn't he not american he is not an american um but i think his work was more influential to american brewers far more influential than it was in in britain for example Mm -hmm. um and he did a similar thing uh his was much more repertorial where he just went around the world and looked at different countries and what they were brewing and wrote about the beers. But then that also to an American eye looked like a description of the natural world. Like if I go to the Serengeti, I'm going to see these, these creatures. And if I go to Belgium, I'm going to see these beers kind of thing. Uh, and there were a couple of mistakes, uh, in this way of thinking that I think nobody at the time recognized, which is, um, (laughs) styles change. And they constantly change, and they change yeah. sometimes really dramatically. Um, I when I I was thinking, I was first thinking about this uh, earlier this year when I was writing an article about Belgian wit beer, which is a very interesting style because it was originally a wild ale that mm-hmm. was made in uh, Hoo Garden mm-hmm. in, in Belgium, and it was made really fast, and it was served fresh. Right. And um, its character was, you know, really colored by the fact that it was highly lactic mm-hmm. um, wheat ale. Right. And then it went extinct. And Pierre Sellis reinvented it, and he made it a non-wild ale, mm-hmm. which he put uh, coriander, coriander and um, orange uh, peel. an orange peel, thank you, in. And basically just recreated an entirely different beer that he called Whitbeer. <laughs> yeah. And now we talk about Whitbeer as though it's a style as opposed to this weird amalgamation amalgamation of, of different hist- historical periods right. that the beers don't have nothing to do with each other. And 
another one is Porter, which started out as a as a that's another giant. It was a giant barrel aged beer, mm-hmm. uh, aged in casks, so it got inoculated with uh, wild yeast, and you know it. it Two hundred years later, it was also not not big, not wild, made with entirely different yeast, totally different beer, except mm-hmm. for the name, totally different beer. So when we talk about porter, we're not talking about a style; we're kind of talking about a long tradition of evolution. And when when Americans first started thinking about uh, styles, I don't think they I think they looked at it and saw, oh, this is old Europe, and they've preserved these styles, these unchanging styles, right, right, right. you know yeah. that uh, that have been there and still remained even while we in America have debased our beer and just sell domestic mass market lager. Um, so that's one piece. And the other the other thing that is frustrating for me as a writer, especially, is that the GABF uh, style guidelines, the BJCP guidelines, which is the homebrew style guidelines, yeah. um, they're prescriptive. They're not descriptive. Yeah. And if they were descriptive, which is to say, we're gonna. That's what Michael Jackson did. He went around and he looked at the beers that were being brewed, and he said, "This is what we're finding." Right. Um, that would be one thing. Then they could change, and you wouldn't necessarily say you got to brew it to style. That mm. that phrase that we hear, or it's not brewed to style. Um, but instead, they are prescriptive. So when people are judging beers or evaluating beers, they're evaluating them to a standard that is really specific and in in my mind always just a snapshot in time but it's not artificial it's really artificial yeah yeah it's totally artificial and uh and it oftentimes and you'll hear this when people are especially talking about competitions it oftentimes doesn't even refer to what you find in the market anymore because the style will have changed enough that (laughs) you have to brew a specific beer just to enter in the competition and you're not even able to sell it because it's not the kind of beer that sells anymore. yeah i mean i think in this long trail of different ipa categories is the history of ipa right so ipa used to be one thing and now it's something else so we got to make a new category for what it is now we still have the category for what it was then and then next year it'll be something else we'll have yet another and then you end up with all of these little categories which are actually just little snapshots in time of the evolution of the beer yeah absolutely so if you if 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 an ipa is supposed to be if if you if it's the year 2000 and an ipa is supposed to be 80 bus right supposed to be pale (laughs) yeah and seven percent ap abv what happens when you have a beer that is totally cloudy, uh, is 40 IBUs, and is 6% ABV. That can't be the same style, so we have to create a new style. Right. You right. can't call that the same style. Yeah. Um, which, this is this is a frustration for me, because it doesn't allow the, the world of beer to breathe in an organic way. Yeah, that's true. It's a, that's a really good, I think, example is the IPA category and how IPAs have evolved in the U.S., at least... Um, and just trying to sort of chase your tail, I suppose, and continually, continually creating new styles. One theory about why styles became so prominent in the United States in particular is because in a country that has no history in that sense, you know, we're really into the idea that, oh, yes, in Cologne, this is what beer is. Right. And that's what a culture is there for. And now and, and, and we just love that idea because we don't have it ourselves. And so now we want to create the thing you get here and the thing you get there. And so I think styles became sort of almost sacrosanct in that sense. And Americans are kind of jerks in that they're like, <laughs> we don't we don't mind messing around with anything. We'll we'll, we'll quickly take a goza and, and, and make it a barrel aged 
uh, watermelon goes uh, in tequila <laughs> barrels, right? Because we're yeah. Americans, we can do whatever. But God forbid that a German should ever make anything that's not a, a, a really traditional goza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true because they're real snobs about that. We're like, oh no, that's not, that's not a real goza. Yeah, yeah. So that's a kind of a funny thing. Um, I wanted to bring this into the the economic sphere, okay? Because we've been talking kind of about the a really specific. I don't even know. It's not even really cultural. It's human, I don't know what, some kind of weird human tendency to categorize and taxonomize. Yeah. But um, I want to, at the end, I want to talk a little bit about other ways to think about beer, Mm -hmm. um, which, because I think that's what's really useful to me is um, where we go forward. But I'm fascinated with how the market handles this because the market can't be prescriptive. Yeah. Well, so yeah, this is, I mean, I can put the sort of, economist hat on and, and the market hat on. We've talked about this in the past, but I'll give my spiel again, which is beer is one of these products, but you don't know what it is until you buy it and try it. <clears throat> and so um, information is important and information is important for a customer to make a informed decision. And you can go from the one extreme, which is to call it beer and say, this is a can of beer and that's it. And you go to another extreme and have a hundred and whatever it is, 86 different styles and that's just too much information like there's no way that most consumers are going to get much out of that and so um this kind of thing that we've settled into the united states um i would say for a sort of a typical beer drinker is like maybe four to six meaningful styles Hmm. so you've got your kind of light lager your macro lagers maybe like a craft lager you have an ipa maybe a pale ale and then a couple other things like a porter, and, you know, depending on the time. Nowadays, it's almost impossible <laughs> to find a porter or a stout. But, but um, you know, you've got just a handful of sort of broad style categories, and that's about as much as I think a typical consumer wants or needs. And um, it might even be broader than that. It might be like you have imported beer, mm-hmm. and that could either be uh, like a really elegant Belgian <laughs> ale, or yeah. it could be Corona, yeah. right? But that's all imported beer. Uh, you have craft beer, yeah. which is everything from Blue Moon to DeGarde's uh, Cool Ship beers, but it all fits in the same category. And then you have uh, domestic lagers, and maybe you have cheap domestic lagers and good domestic lagers, right? So there's like you, there's ways the consumer probably thinks about it that's really simplistic. Yeah, yeah. I would say sort of a, a, a slightly sophisticated consumer knows the difference between, you know, a Budweiser and a craft IPA or something, and they understand sure. that. What IPA means is something that's got, you know, a lot of hop these days, a lot of aroma hops. And and so that's kind of what they need to know when they're walking up to a can of beer. Is it is it the kind that, you know, has a bunch of like aroma and flavor or is it this kind of like more pale thing that's pretty subtle but very easily drinkable? You know, it's that kind of thing that matters to a consumer. And, and I think it's worthwhile to have a distinction between like, an IPA and um, what's a good uh, uh, example? Um, yeah, like a Pilsner or something like right. that, right? Like, right. so I understand sort of broadly what flavor category, what sort of broad profile this looks like, and what broad profile that looks like, and I feel like you know more hops today or something like that, and so I'll buy this one. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I don't know where exactly I'm going with that, except to say that you know too many categories is just not useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, too few categories isn't enough um, be, because you can't 
you know, touch it, feel it, smell it, taste it before you buy it. Um, right. So one thing you, when I, when, I, when, when uh, before I became a full-time writer, back when you had, uh, were, were actually blogging about beer, you pointed out uh, a, a fascinating concept that to me is incredibly important in the marketplace, but maybe not so important. Um, like the, it's completely invisible to the person who thinks about beer in terms of style, but it's incredibly salient to a person who goes to the grocery store and that's price. Yeah. So you were talking about, and we were talking about it in craft beer, but if you go to one six pack and it's say $8 and you look at another six pack and it's $12 and that's the only thing you know about it as a consumer, you know, a huge amount about that. Yeah. And you were, you were pointing out this, this, this thing of signaling, which I had never heard of, but it was like kind of revelatory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of the basic idea is that if you, um, let's suppose you're a new craft brewer and you say, all right, well, I want to make a, I want to get a foothold in this market. So I'm going to price it the same as Budweiser or the same as Ham's or something like that. Well, the problem with that is that your uh, the, the consumer will read your price as a signal of quality. And so if, if it's too cheap, then they won't take you seriously. Um, uh, because consumers just use whatever information they can to build up these um, opinions or this uh, uh, profile of what they think they're getting when they when they buy the beer. So, um, uh, yeah. So that's another big important piece of information is that uh, price as well. And it, my sense is there's always criticism of the stuff. You see it more in the wine world where people say that you can't tell if you do a blind tasting of a cheap wine and a good wine. Mm -hmm. Even experts can't tell the difference. Um, that, you know, I think those are valid on the, on the one hand, but I feel like on the other hand, the market is sort of unforgiving since there's no outside arbiter. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're really at the end of the day, um, the, the, the market does have a kind of wisdom and it feels to me like, especially in beer, um, you can sell expensive beer right up until the moment people don't buy your beer anymore. So yeah. it does feel like in order to command that premium price, you do have to offer customers something that they perceive as valuable. Oh, sure. Yeah, the other the other side is absolutely true. If you try to charge a premium price, but you're not giving them a premium product, then that'll also backfire. The, yeah, the thing about experience good is that the experience happens once you buy it and taste it, and then and then repeat. Consumers know what what they're getting. So it's a tricky little little um, uh, little dance. Um, and I guess the best way to think about it is if it was at a full information environment where you knew exactly what you were getting before you bought it, then that sort of price signaling wouldn't matter at all, right? Because people right. could just basically decide how much better your beer is than the next, lo you know, the lower price beer or something like that. Um, but in this world where you don't have that, then things like branding and labeling and pricing and, and then also the way you describe the beer on the label and the category perhaps or the style that you say the beer is also conveys the information. Yeah. But most consumers don't have 187 different styles in their mind. And so if you say that it's, uh, you know, what was the what was the one, the um, Breslow schnapp style sheps that wouldn't do any you know for most consumers i suspect that wouldn't convey any real information at all yes <clears throat> i wrote the beer bible i'd never heard that style so i looked at it there so well maybe you didn't write the beer bible then did you i guess i didn't <laughs> clearly clearly that's on me uh yeah so i i i think if you if you wanted to um divide beer uh, if the only if the only thing you wanted to do was divide beer by uh, by price, mm -hmm. that would actually be a way of thinking about beer that I think would not be as absurd as it seems like. And 
there's kind of a long history of that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to medieval times, beer prices really did dictate stuff. Yeah. Um, there were, I remember talking to Matthias Trum at uh, uh, Schlenkerla, and he said, and when he was talking about the Hefner, um, when, we, when, when he was dispelling my uh, laundering of the myth that uh, old brewers didn't know what yeast was, mm-hmm. he said, oh, they absolutely knew what yeast was because um, there was a Hefner, a person who, who managed the yeast. So mm-hmm. they would collect the yeast after the brewing and save it. And what they would do is they would press the yeast mm-hmm. and they would get this kind of grungy, low alcohol beer off the yeast, which they would sell to the poor. Uh. <laughs> so uh, and then and then when you when you read stories about um, in, in Great Britain, they would make this really expensive um, October beer and other kinds of beers that were uh, meant to compete with with uh, sherry and other you know right. cordials that you would get from France and places. Um, so that has always been a you know that's not a style kind of thing. It's but it's a it's a different way of thinking about beer. And yeah. if you just one, one thing, the style thing doesn't tell you. One of its inadequacies is it doesn't tell you, you know, it doesn't tell you that a goose takes three years to make. Right. Um, it doesn't tell you that you can make a pale ale in 14 days and have it on the market. So um, there are inadequacies that way that would be resolved by a simpler system. Yeah. But All there right. are other ways, too. Um, yeah. And, so if, if you don't go with style, then what? Yeah. Well, before we do that. We should have this other beer because I think it's an interesting beer I want to talk about. Um, and I think you may need, uh, do you need another glass? Let's, uh, yes, please. The problem with the tyranny of styles is it forces you to brew to style. If you're not thinking in style, uh, which a country like Belgium does not think in style, mm-hmm. you should brew whatever you want. And this beer that I'm about to serve us is an example of not brewing to style. And nah. it's a really clever, it's a really clever beer. I'm going to, I'm going to not tell you right. anything about it. I'm oh, just going to look at that already. Uh, by the way, I'll just, uh, on one last little word on the, the barrel-aged Rhineless Watermelon Goza is that it also has lime, which is probably what I was, that uh, lime and watermelon together is probably what gave me that green apple. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, I was getting the lime too, the citrus, and I, I couldn't get that apple. Yeah. The lime was clear, which was, was giving me that margarita thing. Yep, exactly. All right, here you go. Okay, uh, so this is a dark beer. It's a beer from our friends at Fort George in Astoria called Tideland, um, and... Yeah, yeah. Jeff was very, very coy about this. wanted wanted me to experience this afresh. So, it's a very dark beer. It's very little light is getting through it all. I'm trying to decide if it's red or brown, but it's really hard to tell because it's pretty opaque. Uh, it's got a nice chocolatey head, creamy. It's very roasty coffee on the nose. Chicory, maybe I don't know. Hmm. Oh wow. A little cherry, maybe, in there. Jeff, Jeff's like, just uh, you should see his face. He's very excited about me tasting. It. All right, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, this is not a stump the chump thing either. It's really just wow. I'm curious how he how he sees it. Present. It's a really rich mouthfeel. It's not. It's got kind of a smoky, roasty, but yeah, I, like maybe some kind of stone fruit, like a cherry. I sort of get in the middle, and um, it finishes really smooth and it's quite quaffable. But I suspect it's a little potent. It's not potent. Oh, that potency okay. and the cherry, I think, is probably uh, you're getting from the the secret ingredient, which is it's a it's a five percent beer, mm. so it's a it's a it's a relatively low ABV mm-hmm. uh, stout that they very brewed, rich. Yeah. which they added to which they added some of their 
Matryoshka. I think it's Matryoshka. Some one of their barrel aged uh, imperial stouts. Oh, okay. So it's got uh, it's got uh, the character, a little tiny flavor of the of the bourbon and gotcha. the booze. That's, yeah, that's what I'm. So they just they they get a huge bang for their buck out of the the other beer they blend it with. Um, and it's still only 5%. But in the light base beer. Oh, that's brilliant, actually. It's so brilliant. Because it's so rich. Yeah. I love... Rich, 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 infused flavor. I love all those flavors. I don't love the the sweetness that often comes with them, and I don't like the 14%. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. 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 You still get that um, uh, uh, sort of sweet edge to it, but it's not cloying at all. It's just this bright, sweet note. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it's, a, it's a really cool beer. Yeah, I, that's a really uh, successful experiment. Sally and I were in Astoria, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and it was a cloudy, cold day in Astoria, and we had a pint of this, and uh, it was a perfect day for that kind of beer. Yeah. So anyway. Speaking of transitioning to fall beers. Right. <laughs> uh, mm. I feel like this could be a successful uh, way for people to use their barrel stocks and really uh, knock people out. Yeah, the problem I, is there's no style for this, so I don't know if this beer exists. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we call this beer. Yeah. I, I, I mean, obviously, we're never going to get rid of style. And do I, no. My my peek at uh, uh, the whole concept of style is sort of wrong, but I would I would encourage people to think about beer in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And we just mentioned the the example of, of uh, price as one filter potentially, um, but I have some other examples here and ways other people have categorized beer in the past as well. Okay. Um, uh, we mentioned strength is one thing. Uh, there's a, I don't know if it still exists, but there used to be a, uh, uh, a competition in the UK where they had uh, a combination of package type and strength for their competition. So mm-hmm. it was like beers in this category of strength and like cans, <laughs> and then beers in this strength and category of cask ale, and uh-huh. beers in this category of keg beer. And, um, and when I first saw the results, I thought, this is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. And then I looked at them and I began to think, maybe it's not so idiotic. It's kind of makes some sense because those are natural categories that are formed organically. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's not so dumb. Yeah. So that's one way to do it. Uh, another way to think about it, I think, kind of classically is uh, larger categories like color or type. So, like, yeah. uh, you know, you could think of uh, we we make a real fetish out of talking about all the different Bavarian lagers. Mm-hmm. But you just talk about Bavarian lagers and then everything that, that falls underneath that is a variation on that. I actually think that's a lot more useful because those beers are not that different. Yeah. Um, they have different, they're they're They have different recipes basically, but they're all made the same way. Yeah. So um, you know a lot more about them if you know that they're related than if you just take them separately and try to match them to other things. So I think that's that can be helpful. I mean, uh, uh, getting back to my idea about a categorization system, I was trying to think as you were talking, just sitting here in my head, like if there was like a standard that you could stick on the side of a can, like a couple of maybe six sort of bars, you know, from left to right, they sort of slide. And so one could be light to dark. That's sort of an obvious one. Uh, one might be just binary. Is it a lager? Is it a nail? I suppose. Another one... Um, uh, might be just alcohol strength. Another one, this is the harder one, so you can sort of, sort of the, the prominence of malt flavors, the prominence of hops flavors, something like that. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that seems like five or six categories that get you pretty close to knowing a lot about what you're about to drink. Right. You could, you could. Not the nuances, not the subtleties, but the basics. You could think about all multi beers as one category, all mm-hmm. hoppy beers as one category. You're right. That's a really, I yeah. think, helpful way to think about it. I think about American hoppy ales as a, as a whole big wad i'd try not you know if it's four and a half percent and hoppy it's got a lot more in common with a 12 percent hoppy beer than it has with any other beer made made in the world Mm -hmm. they're like that the ipa is from session ipa that's why there's 10 styles but they're really one category so yeah i think that makes a lot of sense yeah uh so I, I I don't think it's impossible, and it'd be interesting. And we should come up with we come up with a the one that, Emerson scale. Yeah, the one that I would add is patent country. it and sell it to brewers that they can put it on their cans. There you go. Yeah. I love how you always are monetizing, and I'm never monetizing. <laughs> well, well, we, <laughs> when you've got nothing, you always got a dream. That's right. Uh, yeah, I think the last thing that I would add is country of origin, uh, original yeah. country of origin. Like, are you brewing in a tradition? in this kind of tradition because those things have a lot of sticky meaning to um uh, at least at least people who understand those traditions so if you if you call it a belgian style ale you're going to know it's going to be very yeast forward so that that tells you something about it right off the bat yeah that's good um so if you if you call it american style you're probably talking about it being hop forward and uh so i think i think country of origin can tell you a fair amount um Check yeah, the distinction between a Czech lager and a, and a German lager for those people who know the difference is certainly a, a data point that's worth having. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think I, I, I would love people to give up the fights over styles and think more broadly and think about other ways to, to think about these beers and and not think not essentialize them um, to, to say that uh, a Kolsch has to be like this and uh, a double a Belgian double has to be like this and all these things. It's, it's good to know what those are. It's good to know the history and the background and how they're made. But at the end of the day, it, these things, all these styles come through an organic process of, of the market forces and the cultural forces. Yeah. Um, no, there's no judge. There's no God who gets to decide if it's an authentic <laughs> double or not. And uh, we and, should give that up. And so I'll just, uh, to, to, to close the conversation, I'll just ask you one last question, which is you've done a lot of beer competition judging stuff. And so... If you were going to redo the GABF, um, how would you, how would you do it? Like what, just sort of like a general IPA category, and then everybody submits stuff, no matter what what it looks like, and then you just like it or you don't, or how do how do you how would you? I, I, I give a lot of credit to the Oregon Beer Awards for mm-hmm. rethinking this and and doing it in a way that I think is pretty smart. Um, they they do for IPAs, for example, mm-hmm. um, they have two two broad categories of IPAs, which are hazy and non-hazy, uh-huh. and they just do them by by strength. So they have hazy, um, I think it's below 6%, and then hazy between 6 and 8, and hazy above 8, and same for the other one. Right. Um, something like that. I don't know exactly how they do it. Yeah. Um, and then they talk about uh, traditional styles. Uh, I think they have traditional North American styles, traditional European styles, um, which they throw into one hopper, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to have a separate category for for every single kind of historic traditional style, particularly because they're not made that much. So I think one thing that they're trying to do is look at getting uh, categories that roughly have similar amounts of beer. So they're not, you know... uh, Yeah, and the evolution of a beer... uh, competition like the GABF I mean one of the reasons they have 187 styles I mean is because they keep trying to 
you know, the beer is changing. Mm-hmm. And so instead of just moving the style, they just say, okay, well, now this is a new style. Yeah. And yet they still judge the old style. So you've got a lot of people who brew a beer that nobody wants to drink anymore. Right. Just to submit and to get a medal. <laughs> and that seems a little bit weird, right? Totally. Yeah. And if you think about it, that's why I like the OBAs. If you divide it by these, if you, if you say IPAs are kind of a giant category mm-hmm. and we're just going to divide the categories by strength, then it doesn't matter how many variations on IPA there are. You're still going to submit them in one of these three categories, um, whether it's hazy or clear, you know, and then it's, it's just by strength. So I think thinking about categories in general, when I, uh, I remember when I was coming up, um, people used to debate porters and stouts, like what's a porter and what's a stout. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I can't even remember the abstruse arguments uh, at this point. <laughs> it, just, it was kind of nutty, and, I, and it made me feel inadequate. Because I didn't know what the arguments, yeah. um, and I look back and I think the arguments were dumb to begin with. <laughs> and really, what we're talking about is dark ales. You know, it's right. a, the, 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 a, it's a dark it's dark ales that come from the English tradition, and yeah. it doesn't matter if they're four percent or nine percent; they all come from the same tradition. They all have dark malts, and they all have kind of a similar flavor profile. Yeah. Um, so they're to me, they're all kind of related. Yeah. So that I I tend to think of them in bigger bigger categories. So. Wild, wild ales is, you know, like a giant category and I could throw a lot of different things in there. So categories are more useful to me than, than styles in terms yeah. of evaluating or understanding a beer. All right. Well, that was very interesting. Uh, I was going to say food for thought, drink for thought, drink for thought. <laughs> uh, but we should probably uh, switch to the mailbag, Jeff, because it's full mailbag is bulging. So thanks to everybody for, for sending in their uh, questions and comments. Yeah, you are awesome. I always feel like our, our mailbag gets flat and empty, and I think, okay, it's done. We're going to have to end, end this thing, even though we're, we're begging people. And then, boom, you come through. You have questions. You have great comments, insightful observations, and yeah. we're, we're back to the mailbag. So, All right. so yeah. let's get to it. The first mailbag item comes from uh, Daniel Cutsacrio. Daniel also wrote another uh, mailbag item that we covered last week's pod. <clears throat> so this week, Daniel writes... Uh, I'm finally making a trip to Portland, partly inspired by you. So, you know, travel Portland, send us your check. That's right. Uh, so I'm uh, finally making a trip to Portland this week with a friend with little agenda other than trying out the many Portland breweries I've been hearing about in the show and blog that I've never uh, had access to before. I've read through your Portland brewery posts, but I was wondering if you might be willing to also recommend any great beer bars in the city. Oh, good question. Yeah. So that we can try a greater sample of breweries, such as those from the greater Pacific Northwest. Anything else you could recommend would be great as well, but that's the primary one I thought you might be able to help with. We're staying in Northeast Portland, but planning to venture throughout the city. So that is a great... Uh, question and mm-hmm. we've actually talked about this a bit especially with fresh hop beers right because it's we always go to one of those beer bars yeah because uh, if you go to any you know in fresh hop beer season a brewery might do usually does one maybe two and then if they're really ambitious they might do three but basically if you're going to a place that a brewery then you're basically you know going to try one one or two most likely but if you go to a beer bar then you can sit there with a list i don't know the last one we went to had like 17 different fresh hop beers on for example so i've become actually more and more of a beer bar enthusiast uh, as time has gone on so what do you think jeff where is the where where, what are good places to go yeah i mean well let's mention that one it's called loyal legion and i think one of its great assets is it has a lot of taps it has high volume so those taps are always going to have fresh beer on Uh, and i've never had a bad like I think they they maintain their taps well. They keep their lines clean. They right. go through beer fast. So 
it's good stuff usually, yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, all Oregon beer. So if you're looking for Oregon beer, it's a good stop. Yes. As far as that goes, um, which if you're visiting, you probably want Oregon beer. So that's a good stop. Um, I think one of the classic uh, Portland institutions anybody would do well to stop at is the Horse Brass. Yep. Uh, that is an old uh, pub that goes back to 1976 or coming in on 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like an English style pub, but it is also very Northwest. Yeah. So it it uh, it really feels like old Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a they have a much broader variety, not only uh, Oregon beers, but um, beers from around the country and and, and uh, always a few uh, international choices. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, I've thrown it out too. What do you got? <laughs> well, I was just going to throw in, uh, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the previous pod, but uh, COVID really threw this place for a loop. Uh, a little beer, a beer bar was opening up in my neighborhood, and then COVID messed things up, and I thought it was dead and gone, but no. All this time, it's been incubating, and um, it's called uh, Smitty's Tap House. It's on 13th and Selwood. Nice. I actually haven't been there, but I have looked at their tap list, and I was impressed. It seems like a very well-curated tap list, quite a number of beers. Um, so I know where we're going next. We're going down to Smitty's. <laughs> I'm going down to Smitty's. So uh, I'll throw that out there as a good uh, shout. Um, the uh, uh, two places that are beer stores but also beer bars are might be worth checking out especially if you want to grab some packaged beers too because you can usually buy a buy a beer and drink it you know unpackage it at, at there one of them is belmont station classic also old school early classic beer bar. old school and yeah. so they have a very nice curated constantly rotating beer list and it's not just oregon but it's a lot of pacific northwest beers california beers things like that um and further flung as well imports uh, and uh, John's Market has John's Market on the east side on Powell Boulevard also has a beer bar associated with their beer store. I will throw in the Beer Mongers, which has a more limited tap uh, list, but has a really good vibe. Um, sometimes beer bars feel a little like not a community place, but yeah, the Beer Mongers true. is a real community. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, I have. With COVID, I haven't actually spent as much time in bon- Mongers as I used to, but um, the the writer, uh, John Foyston, that used to be his hangout, and I hope it still is. So you might see John Foyston if you go there, <laughs> um, his local. Um, and uh, I'm going to throw in Roscoe's, just for good measure, which is out in East Portland in Montevilla, and mm. it was a former dive bar that was converted into a craft beer bar, but not really converted much, mainly just the taps were shifted over, so it has a dive bar feel. Portland is one of the great dive bar cities in America. We have a lot of, uh, and dive can sometimes make it sound uh, denig- uh, denigrative, but so let, we'll maybe just say neighborhood pubs. Um, so it's a good example of one of those. So I would recommend that one as well. Yeah, all good shouts and plenty more. And yeah. Please let us know ones we haven't really hit the west side very well because we're yeah. not very west side-y. I have no idea what the uh, west side. <laughs> uh, type people. Um, the other thing I'll just say is that these days you can kind of go in anywhere and they might not have an extensive beer list, but they almost always have decent craft beer in almost any bar or restaurant. Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to go wrong. So um, good luck. And let me know what you find out, Daniel. But yeah, I would recommend as a first stop, Loyal Legion is a great it's, a great way to get started. It's really hard to beat. And yeah. it's in the thick of the Southeast brewery. So there's a million other breweries if you're starting out. You yeah, yeah. Go. It's a great place to park. And then you can just walk around from there and yeah. hit about 26 different other places. It's, it's, a, it's a good place. <laughs> All right. All right. Tobias Krempel, who is a former beer sales rep from Seattle, uh, wrote in to re- re- reply to your question uh, or your comment, oh, yeah. your comment about um, 
why don't breweries just have a beer cooler with cans? It seems like it would be a lot less hassle than messing around with kegs. Yeah, so this is a quick, the quick comment happened to be, I went to my local pizza place that has like six taps, but like five of them were out. Uh, but they had a cooler of cans. And I just thought, well, why even bother with the taps uh, for a place like that? Yeah. Uh, Tobias writes, uh, cleanup plays a bigger part than one might think as a retailer. A place that isn't focused on craft beer, like a music venue or a big bar near a stadium will have less taps to clean and less kegs to rotate if they stock up on cans because you're stuck in that venue they can charge a premium for cans a pub and restaurant on the other hand needs to move volume and have space for half barrel kegs to make craft uh, uh draft craft beer financially viable mm. they might put a, a fridge of beer cans in just for the to-go crowd but the majority of beer sales still rely on draft consumption on site for sit-down spots like those post-COVID, I'd say the 16-ounce cans are replacing growler crowler sales more than they are draft pints. Early in COVID, it seemed like crowlers were going to take off around Seattle bars and breweries, but that was optimistic as more brewers just started canning. Everybody bought a canning line with their PPP money yeah. uh, and seeing the value in having more packaged beers. As a brewery, I'd rather uh, have lost some margin by selling more cans than lose sales to a grocery store because a customer just didn't want to deal with the growler. Yeah. So, yeah, so I get the point that if you have too many cans, you just start cannibalizing your taps. Right. And then that's that. That's not great either. Um, yeah, it's interesting, though. But I do see, you know, that whole Crowler thing came and went really fast. It really did. Yeah. I, I was, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, Crowler. <laughs> <laughs> that was a thing. For yeah, a even minute. Growler, like there's still a couple of Growler places. Uh, you know, they're essentially beer bars, but they, they started off life as being, you know, we'll fill up your, your Growlers. And then later crowlers. Right. Um, and most of them are gone now because that sort of market's gone. But there's still a few that sit around. I think they're mostly basically just beer bars. Totally. But they still have that growler name on there. Right. Right. <laughs> They've just morphed. Uh, okay. Next uh, question comes from uh, Chad Lamasa from Baltimore. Hi, Chad. He writes, there are several breweries here that have tap walls. I don't know if that's a thing that has made it to Portland or not. If not, let me explain. You go to the counter and you get a card. You insert the card into whatever tap you want and pour as much as you want, and it charges you per the ounce or whatever. Then you just pay for what you poured. I'm not a fan. First, I have to do the work. I pour every beer I drink at home. I don't want to do that when I'm out. My second reason is, though I wouldn't consider myself a people person, I enjoy the interaction with the bartenders and our owners. Yeah, to me, going to a brewery is more about the social aspect of it, whether it's with family or friends or employees. I was wondering what your thoughts are on this. I have a few thoughts. Well, fire away. And this is kind of gets into a But first of all, we should say this is not a thing in Portland. It's not a thing in Portland. I will. So uh, I lived in Denver, Denver for a number of years. And as I was leaving Denver, there was a place downtown that was being built out. Uh, and it had opened. And I cannot remember the name. Uh, it might have been a Cheney place because Denver is very Cheney. But what they were building was these big tables that had taps built in. And so you sit, yeah, you'd sit at the table and they were good, big enough for like six or eight. So basically for groups. And then you could serve yourself from the taps. And they had some similar kind of system where you had to give a credit card first. And then as you served, it would monitor your serving and then charge the credit card that was attached to it. And I thought, first I thought, well, this is kind of clever. And then I thought, well, this kind of sucks. And for the, some of the same reasons. Um, and why I uh, was ready to jump on this as a comment is that I think one of the big mistakes for beer bars and for 
uh, brew pubs and other places that serve craft beer is not training your staff well enough so that they can have a conversation with you about the beer. Because what I want to know is, well, what's this beer like? What's that beer like? I like these kinds of beers. What can you recommend? Uh, and um, I'm often disappointed at the, the lack of beer knowledge. And it's not the server's fault. It's the fault of the owner who's not putting the time in to, to train servers to be able to interact that way. So that's my answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I totally agree with what Chad said. I, my, I, I would just second Chad's view. I, I also, we, I've never seen this, but I would I would feel like, um, why am I at a pub? If I, you know, what, the whole point is, I personally, I am an introvert, mm -hmm. and I don't usually like being around uh, big crowds, but I love, love, love going to pubs, and I love walking straight up to the bar and sitting between two people and talking to the bartender. I, for some reason that totally thrills me and you know, you just, you, you, it's all about the social interaction of hanging out. And if I'm sitting at my, the one that you described seems even worse where I'm sitting at my, my little table, just like serving myself beer. Yeah. yeah. Slamming, slamming massive amounts of beer <laughs> from like, my wait, own this tap. is just like at home. Oh, <laughs> and it, it, it also seems a little dangerous uh, that you might really over pour. So yeah. I feel like if I got to think about every round, you know, and whether I'm going to have another round, I don't know. Yeah. I will say this is kind of the brilliance of the American bar, which is a little bit unique in the world, not entirely, but pretty unique in the world. Like in, in, um, in Brazil, you go to places that proudly call themselves American bar. And what that means is they actually have a bar uh -huh. that you sit at, you know, with the bartender behind. And then like, you know, if you've been to France, that's not the way they do it. In England, not so much, a little bit sometimes, but for the most part, you don't sit at the bar and interact as, as much. You can though. We, and we did. You we can, had you can, yeah. But it's not it's nearly... Uh, Germany not either. The tradition, Germany not either. And so I find that, I really enjoy that. And like when you're traveling for work and stuff and you're by yourself, I always find that a much warmer, more welcoming space than like going and sitting at a table by myself. <laughs> yeah, nothing feels more alone than sitting at a table by yourself in a bar. Yeah. But so, like you said, at, a, at, a, at the bar and you're friends with everybody. Yeah, so this is just a chance to sort of to give a little shout out to the, Ameri the whole tradition of the American bar, which I think is a, is a, a, is a pretty awesome tradition. That's a really good idea. I, I, you yeah. know, I never really thought of it in those terms. But and it's kind of awesome. anti what uh, Chad is talking about. So yeah, I, I'm with you, Chad. I'm not a big fan of it. I, I, I would not choose to go to a place like that i totally agree all right our last one comes from joe Auden, who's here in portland and he was reflecting on my audio blog uh about pumpkin beers because I, I had a pumpkin beer post yeah and we were like. you know the whole the whole the whole genius of this pod of this pod, this, pod, this podcast was going to be that you had just tasted <laughs> pumpkin beer for the first time everything would, this would have been a beautiful callback but i uh, but you're colorblind i botched it badly <laughs> uh anyway we'll get to uh joe's comments uh he said uh, one thing i didn't catch on your blog was that the very sweet uh, adjunct uh, including spice beers have become mainstream pumpkin beers have essentially been lapped by year-round pastry strouts and sour offerings in other words pumpkin pie is baked year-round so mm. why are pumpkin beers thriving mm. so why aren't pumpkin beers thriving the analogy i'd use is nobody gets very excited about a naturally aspirated internal combustion engine sports car anymore in the time of evs so well, i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and guess that joe is a is a car guy because yeah. a lot of those are words i don't know anything about and uh <laughs> but i but but his point carries on as we continue sure non uh na motorists will have uh their faithful aging audiences 
naturally aspirated, mm-hmm. not non-alcoholic, uh, but they have been quite literally lapped. In the beer world, the peeps and cranberry sauces are now year-round. So when you're walked by the so when you've walked by the proverbial grocery store end cap each month past whatever variant of pumpkin pecan vanilla coconut hazelnut cacao nib pie is on offer <laughs> the ginger allspice clove vanilla thing that shows up in october is just not as compelling because it isn't novel i don't have anything to add and i totally agree yeah yeah i think that that, that speaks for itself yeah <laughs> Uh, I think naturally aspirated. We're talking about carburetors, not turbocharged, and maybe even not fuel injection. But maybe you're more of a car guy than I maybe am. Maybe fuel right. injection is is allowed. I don't know. Anyway, all right. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Dan. Uh, was that everybody this time? Oh, and Tobias. Uh, we appreciate all of your comments, and please, everybody, keep them coming. And I would just like to point out that uh, the comments we had in this mailbag and last mailbag were really uh, smart, uh, smarter. In, in some cases than we were uh, <laughs> finding finding interesting things that we hadn't noticed uh, and we love those so if you have some interesting thing that we keep not saying please say it for us and send us in a uh, mailbag item yeah uh, okay a few words going out please subscribe on Apple SoundCloud Spotify Audible or wherever you get your podcast don't forget to rate us five stars please that helps other listeners find the show we'd love to hear from you so please send your questions or comments keep them coming Jeff at BeerVanaBlog.com is the best place but also on Twitter or Instagram we are at at BeerVanaPod Jeff blogs at the BeerVana blog and he tweets at BeerVana uh, and Patrick tweets at BeerNomic sorry <laughs> I was uh, you're pouring more beer I, I had I had drunk all me beers which is and, important uh, because now we're at the cheers so that's cheers right. Jeff I have the uh, Tideland uh, from Fort George and I went back to the well on this barrel aged rindless watermelon goes goza yeah. from Hopworks it turns out watermelons are not pumpkins right. <laughs> cheers Jeff true cheers Patrick <laughs>